You're listening to Stemcast, brought to you by McGill iGem. Welcome to this episode of Stemcast. Today we are joined by Dr. Joe Schwartz, director of McGill's Office for Science and Society, where he focuses on science communication and reducing misinformation around science. Dr. Schwartz teaches several courses at McGill with more than 3,000 students enrolled and hosts the longest-running radio show on chemistry, The Dr. Joe Show, which has been on the air for over 40 years. To start, can you give us an overview of the Office of Science and Society and the initiatives you're spearheading there? Sure. Uh, so the, the office was actually formally uh, created uh, by the university 23 years ago. But uh, uh, I've been teaching you know, chemistry at McGill much longer than that, <laughs> since, since uh, 1980. And uh, so together with a couple of colleagues, uh, we were uh, constantly you know, annoyed by the fact that uh, there was misinformation out there and, and uh, uh, and that uh, courses actually did not contain enough practical information for students. Uh, there was a lot of theory that was being taught, but so often students didn't understand why they were learning that theory. They didn't see the the light at the end of the tunnel. So uh, the you know our early focus was on uh, introducing practical aspects of of science into our courses, and then uh, students liked it. And, uh, and I think went home and talked about it to their parents. So I started to get, you know, a request to speak to parents groups. And then it, it kind of steamrolled from there. Um, and uh, it kind of, uh, you know, juxtaposed with the other things that I was doing. I mean, I, I've, uh, I have a, a radio show on chemistry that has been uh, uh, running for 40, uh, it's going into the 43rd year, which is the longest show yeah. chemistry in the history of the world super uh, impressive so and you know and i was also writing a column for the montreal gazette and i'd written some books so it started steamroller and that that's when the university said well maybe you know we should formalize this in some way because there's such hunger out there for scientific information that uh, if it isn't fulfilled in a proper scientific way the charlatans and the quacks and you know the pseudoscience people uh rush in to fill the vacuum and uh, so that's when the office was created with a really a, a mandate uh to separate sense from nonsense and myth from fact which uh you know as i'm sure you can appreciate is is, is very challenging these days especially you know given the the COVID crisis that we've been struggling with for for three years uh, because, you know, whenever science doesn't have all the answers, and indeed we don't have all of the answers for COVID, uh, then the quacks will rush in uh, because they always have an answer. It's usually wrong, but they always have an answer, you know. So, um, yeah, it's it's been a, a battle, especially over the last uh, couple of years. But, but uh, you know, we, we fight it in the trenches, uh, you know, on, on our website, uh, with newsletters, on TV, on, on radio, wherever uh, we can. And hopefully at least some of the messages getting out there, uh, the message being on, on who one should listen to. I mean, you know, why should they listen to me, right? I mean, so the, the first message that, you know, I, I usually uh, uh, try to uh, talk about is how science works. 
and what is meant by a peer-reviewed publication and how how do researchers uh, carry out uh, experiments where do they get money to do this you know what is the whole grant application process how does that work and once you've done a study what do you do with it well you write it up you submit it to a journal the journal editor sends it out to referees there's a lot of back and forth and eventually it either gets published or it gets rejected and uh if it has if it's published it is because at least experts have reviewed it to you know uh, to a certain extent so we uh, we emphasize obviously uh, a respect for peer reviewed publications as as the main source of information but one also has to be realistic here and say that you know the, uh, it's not set in stone because uh, humans are human and uh, you know they make mistakes or they can promote fraud and you know they that uh, uh, dreadful paper uh, linking vaccination to autism uh, by andrew wakefield was published in the lancet which is one of the world's premier medical journals so you know the question arises how does that happen well it happens because when you get a paper to review you have to assume that whatever is written there is is what was actually done and that the researchers did the work properly and interpreted it i mean the referees of course cannot redo the experiments and you know uh, that's usually a collaborative effort of of a number of people over years so you have to assume that what they say they did that they actually did and if someone is going to submit fraudulent data, as Wakefield did, that's not going to come to light until someone tries to replicate the work, which can take years. And that's why you know we had epidemics of measles that we hadn't had for decades, because it was about 20 years until it was shown that paper was fraudulent. But nevertheless, I mean, peer review is still the best method that we have to to disseminate information so that's you know one of the main messages that we try to get out there uh, because there are so many messengers you have to know who is worth listening to and who not because so often the promoters of pseudoscience are very good at what they do and you know i sometimes i have to give them begrudging credit you know they're very good at getting their message wrong message out there because they have learned to dress themselves in the cloak of science. They have learned to use pseudoscientific lingo. They can sound very, very convincing and they have all the answers. So, you know, that's, uh, that's the battlefield out there. And that's exactly what it is. It's, it's a battlefield because there's a lot of controversy. There are a lot of people who are uh, just, disseminating wrong information for several reasons very often it's for some sort of financial gain in some fashion sometimes it's just ignorance of how science works sometimes it's just a search for fame and you know promoting one's ego uh so uh it's it's a tough task to to you know try to overturn the crazies because just so many of them out there. So jumping off of that, 
Young adults don't often keep track of peer-reviewed sources of information and instead use social media as a filler for news, which can obviously lead to the propagation of a lot of misinformation. So how do you think that we can help young adults shift towards a more reliable source of news? Look, I mean, the social media, social media is a problem. There's no, mm-hmm. no question about it. It's, it's a double-edged sword. Uh, I mean, the internet, of course, has made our life much, much easier in many ways. I mean, I, you know, I haven't been to the library in years. I mean, why should I go to the library? A few keystrokes and the library comes to me, right? So uh, it has really facilitated uh, the quest for good information. But it has also facilitated the the uh, the spread of of, of nonsense, because uh, basically, you know, with most social media, there's no overseeing. Uh, I mean, uh, if you, yes, I mean, if you make you know some sort of outright racist statement, then you know, Facebook and Twitter will clamp down on that. But if it's just you know wrong information about uh, the number of people dying from, you know, from COVID vaccines. Uh, there's no review for that. So, and, and you can make that sound very good. You know, you 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 can cherry pick uh, the scientific literature and uh, demonstrate whatever you want to to demonstrate. So, uh, you have to be very circumspect about the the social media, and uh, it's. You know, it's something that really you have to come to realize yourself by just knowing what's out there and, and you know, uh, seeing where the information comes from. I mean, there's no magic formula to tell people, you know, uh, what is right and, and what is wrong. But uh, as a general rule, the first question should be when you see something on social media that, that you, know, you might want to question. The question to ask is, where does this information come from? Does it trace back to some proper scientific study? Or is it coming out of you know, someone's head or another part of their anatomy? Right. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I wish there were a secret formula, you know, that you could tell people that you follow this and then, you know, you'll be on the right track. There isn't. And as a general rule, uh, you know, uh, when it comes to controversial issues, uh, people have to convince themselves. Uh, it, it, uh, it doesn't work to, you know, to take an anti-vaxxer, you know, with whom obviously I've had many battles. It doesn't work to, to uh, denigrate their ideas, call them stupid which even though they may be, that doesn't work. Uh, What I find is the best way to do it is to try to give them the rope to hang themselves, to to start asking questions about where they got that information. And then eventually, of course, it comes down to that it doesn't come from some sort of reputable source. And then when they see how that works, then they start to question other things because you you have to be able to satisfy yourself from the inside it it doesn't work when other people tell you you know uh you i i cannot convert a dedicated anti-vaxxer it's that's not going to happen 
And, you know, I know that from experience and also not, not worth trying. But there is also, a, you know, a, a good chunk of the public who is legitimately confused, who doesn't know because, you know, they have this seemingly contradictory information coming at them from every angle. There you have a chance of, of steering them in the right direction by showing them how, you know, the scientific method method works <clears throat> so that's who we have to concentrate on is 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 the people who uh, are legitimately curious are confused and are willing to listen to to cogent arguments and it just uh, we just have to forget about the dedicated conspiracy theorists you know uh, because uh, it's like banging your head into the wall you're not going to to convince them so you know you 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 have to know what your target population is uh, so that you can you know argue uh, effectively one thing we've noticed is that the more educated a population is the harder it is to spread misinformation You've done numerous talk shows and published numerous books. And I remember the 2019 Trottier Symposium on longevity, which I found particularly interesting. What have you found is the best way to promote education with the goal of providing quality information to those who are open to changing their beliefs? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, obviously it's an excellent question. But again, you know, I, I wish I had some sort of magic uh, answer to that. Uh, what I find is that you have to have a tone which is sort of friendly, where you don't look down on 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 people. And uh, stories work very well. Uh, you can't just recite facts; that that doesn't work. But if you can embrace them in some kind of a a story that you know you know people relate to where which gives it some color that is what works i mean i give you just an example right now because i'm, I'm just thinking about this is, is uh you know there's this uh, south american tea called yerba mate which is is very interesting you know it's an extract of, of a plant and a lot of science to be discussed there uh, because there's some carcinogenic potential and there's some possible health benefits as well well, it turns out that it's the favorite drink of Pope Francis. So, you know, if if you start out with a story like that of, you know, do you know what is the favorite drink of Pope Francis? You get it going, and then you get into that, well, Pope Francis actually has a degree in chemistry, which is true, you know? And then you get into the scientific topics. So you've captured their imagination by something that they can relate to. And uh, though the you know the eventual argument will come down to talking about the risks and benefits of this particular uh, beverage, but when you uh, make it part of a, a a wider story, it works much better than saying, "Well, yerba mate is an extract of a plant, and it has caffeine, and it has this, that, and you know." Uh, <laughs> So, uh, making science colorful is, you know, is an important part of the business of, of science communication. And if you can uh, throw in some whimsy, some witticisms, uh, that that works. Uh, so you want to do whatever is possible 
to not make it dry, you know, to, to have some, uh, some degree of entertainment in it uh, as, as well. Uh, you know, it's like uh, making the medicine go down by putting a little sugar in it. So you can get the heart science across much, much better if you put it into some sort of context. So that's, that's what we try to do. Okay, yeah, and I think um, a next question that we might ask, is there a specific time that you can remember when you realized that you'd really gotten through to a specific group, like you, you'd chosen the right examples? Is there one that stands out to you? Uh, I don't know if, if one can say a group. I, I, that, that would be hard, you know, hard to evaluate. But certainly there have been cases where you get across to individual people. You know, uh, but again, those are people who come with questions that are legitimate, where, you know, they they understand that there's a certain degree of confusion in science and they want to be unconfused. Uh, and those are not people whose mind is is already shut, you know, like the conspiracy theories and the anti-vaxxers. You're never going to get through to them because, you know, it's they're brain is like concrete you know you can't get through so yes i mean there there certainly are, are cases with individuals you know who have come with 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 questions and and then you know you unravel the data you show them how you interpret the statistics uh, that yes that happened now as far as groups i mean i would hope that that there is some you know uh benefit for doing what we do in class. I mean, this is a large group. I mean, right now I have a class with 2,600 students in it, which is, you know, it's the largest course in the history of Canada in terms of enrollment. Uh, and uh, of course there's uh, uh, there are students in there who, who have, I'm sure many of the, the questions raised, you know, by looking at social media and, you know, who, who may see, oh, yes, uh, well, you know, someone has presented data that that uh, uh, it is much more likely if you're vaccinated to end up in an ICU than if you're not, you know. So I, I'm sure, you know, there are people who read that on, on you know, social media and have questions. So there, I do have a very large group. So hopefully, uh, you know, some of the confused ones get unconfused. But, you know, it's it's hard to know to 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 what extent. I mean, yeah, I mean, this is one of the, you know, uh, the perennial uh, problems that we have is how do we know that whatever we're doing is effective? You know, uh, I mean, there's there's no easy way to uh, to measure that. And, you know, you get anecdotal reports, people who will thank you for, you know, explaining it and say, now I see and, you know, we'll go and get a vaccine, whereas before they they were hesitant. So, yes, um, but, you know, there are anecdotal cases like that. And you, you just hope that, that the message is, is getting through, but there's no real way to measure it. Going on a bit of a tangent here. A lot of times in research, we get things wrong. 
like we saw with the link between vaccination and autism, as well as recently in the Alzheimer's community, a lot of upset about A-beta star 56. How do you suggest we take a step back and recognize mistakes? You know, you, you have to, to send the message that while uh, the scientific method is, is the best method we have to, to you know, get information, it doesn't guarantee, you know, correctness. And we have to, you know, also admit that, that science isn't all-knowing. Uh, you know, we, we uh, kind of, it's like a race towards the finish line. But the finish line always keeps receding from you. You know, whatever issue you look at and you're getting, you know, there's more and more data, more and more stuff to interpret, and you're getting closer and closer to, quote, the truth. But you never quite get there. There's always, there's always some but. And, you know, in, in, uh, in science, I mean, so much of our language has maybes and perhaps and you know, and almost as you know, almost every scientific paper ends with more research is needed, you know. So uh, we have to admit that science is an ongoing process. It progresses by small steps, not by giant leaps. And that's the, that's the best that, that we can do. But we do have to, to admit that uh, mistakes have been made. You know, and and uh, honest mistakes. You know, I mean, it it it's not that long ago. I mean, the nineteen fifties and nineteen sixties, when someone had a heart attack, uh, they were put on six weeks of bed rest because it seemed a logical thing to do. If you perturb the heart, you 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 know, it needed rest. Okay, there 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 was no clinical evidence for that, but it it seemed logical, and that was done until studies showed that, that that was exactly the wrong thing to do. Well, okay, then you correct it, but admit that that it was wrong. And I think it's, it's, it's important in, in science to admit mistakes, uh, especially these days, <laughs> because you can't cover up anything. You know, it, eventually it will come out. And uh, as I said before, science is practiced by people, and people make errors. People commit fraud, and we we have to to openly admit that, and not you know not um, imply that that uh, science that that the pursuit of science is some sort of you know holy venture that that. Uh, you must believe without uh, fail failure. You know, sometimes we go on the wrong track. But the thing is that that unlike pseudoscience, science is a self-correcting discipline. You see, so that eventually, things like the Wakefield paper and the Alzheimer's paper, eventually that comes out and it gets corrected, right? Whereas if you look at some pseudoscience you know, like Homeopathy is a, a great example. The arguments that they make today are the same as they were making 200 years ago. There's been no evolution in, in, in the thought, despite the, the mountains of evidence that have come out, you know, about homeopathy being nonsense. So they never changed their mind. And there's, there's 
nothing wrong with changing your mind. That is part and parcel of the scientific process, you know? I mean, sometimes I, I get questions in, like, uh, I'll, I'll be giving a talk somewhere and I'll say, someone will say, see you guys, you scientists, you used to say uh, 30 years ago that we should be taking vitamin E supplements and now you're saying that there, there's no evidence for it. You see you guys, you scientists, one day you say this, next day you say, say that, why should we believe you? Well, I mean, the fact is that that 30 years is not exactly one day this, next day that. And in 30 years, you accumulate a lot of scientific knowledge. And while what was being said at that time about vitamin E may have been totally correct based on the evidence that was available. However, evidence changes and more and more studies are, are done and bigger and better studies are, are, are done. And today we're not saying the same thing. I think it would be a bigger problem if we were saying exactly the same thing in every aspect of science because it would mean that nothing has been learned, that there has been no evolution. So science evolves, and that means that that uh, we do change our mind about some things. As we discussed, the scientific investigation process isn't always perfect and sometimes leads to errors. And similarly, our own knowledge base is necessarily imperfect and has to constantly be updated and adjusted. So having such a large listenership on your podcast and other forums, what have been your strategies over the years to maintain and adjust your own knowledge base? There's no way other than doing a lot of hard work, you know, in, in uh, acquiring the knowledge. Uh, and, you know, I mean, these days, there is just so much information being published. You know, there, uh, there are roughly five peer-reviewed papers that come out every minute of every, every day. So it's, it's impossible even to keep up you know, in one small sliver. So it is, it, it, yeah, it's, it, it's hard. I mean, I, you know, uh, I, I have to, to read widely and speak to a lot of experts. Uh, and, uh, you know, when you relay the information, you also give the background of how you found out all of this information. In, in science, it's always reference, reference, reference. You know, I, I try to present, uh, how I know what I know, where, you know, where it comes from that, you know, I'm not making, uh, making this, this up. And uh, you hope that, that people get the, the message that uh, you're reliable, but I mean, you will always, uh, always have the opponents, you know, who have their own vested interests. And, and it's like I told you at the beginning, it, it, this is a very challenging field. Uh, to be in hopefully we're you know we get somewhere we, get, we uh, turn some some heads turn some brains on for uh for all the people that are kind of convinced already that you know we have to go through the scientific peer review process and what kind of comes out of there is more acceptable i personally i find we still like i if i'm reading just a couple of papers it's a bombardment of information and every time i read something new it's like oh you shouldn't take vitamin E supplements, for example. And myself, personally, I know some people who, who will live and, and swear by a singular paper and always exactly. kind of the next paper that comes out, no, just live by that that's one. A, that's a real problem. That's another very important message to get, get across, that in science, we never set store 
by one single paper. What you look for is consensus because there is really, there is no scientific issue on which there are no two sides. There always are, but the two sides are not equivalent. And this is something that, you know, is, is um, not generally understood by reporters who, who report on scientific stories, but who have no scientific training themselves, which is most reporters. You know, if, uh, for example, if, if they will uh, write an article on climate change, so they'll interview an expert on one side, they'll interview an expert on the other side, they'll write their article, and it seems as if the two sides have equal weight, right? Because both sound reasonable, but the fact is that they don't have equal weight because 97% of all climate scientists in the world will agree that there's human involvement in, in climate change. Yes, there's the other 3%, usually, who are very good talkers and they can make you know a, a very good case. They, they can make it very, very believable by cherry-picking uh, data. But we look for consensus. And, you know, in, in that case, I mean, there's no question. The consensus is they often quoted 97%. Well, I mean, you can argue, you know, maybe it's not 97%, maybe it's 90, but so what? I mean, it's, it's obviously, you know, the, the vast majority. Uh, but uh, this is the case for virtually every issue. There will always be two sides, but there will be a preponderance of evidence for one side. And that's the message that one has to uh, get out there. Jumping a bit off what you said, how do we filter through all this novel research that's coming out? We're currently being bombarded with more information than we've ever had available. And how do you choose what novel insights are actually worth pursuing or adapting lifestyle changes to? The Really, the, the, uh, the answer to that is that you have to read very widely. You know, you, you have to look at the references, you have to, to actually read the references, and, and um, eventually you see what's what, you know, and who's making the best arguments. And uh, yeah, but it, it, that just takes a lot of work. You know, what, whatever topic you are going to deal with, you got to look at the literature and, and eventually, uh, you know, when you obviously when you look at more than one paper, you, you start to see the direction that everything is is taking, and you read and read and read, and you know, you you see, you know, is there consensus on one side or? Uh, but yeah, single papers are you know, never, uh, and of course, also what you have to take into account uh, is where the funding comes from. Uh, because, you know, even if, if uh, you're a totally honest scientist, the fact is that when you're getting funding from a vested interest, it, it can cloud the way that you... Uh, I mean, if you take an example, I mean, let's say... Let's say you get a grant from Campbell Soup to study whether or not eating soup is effective in weight loss. 
So you may carry out an excellent study. You know, it may be, you know, a proper randomized uh, trial. And uh, you may find that it, the hypothesis was wrong, right? That it doesn't have an effect on weight control. Well, you just might not publish that because you know that you'll never get another grant from that that source. So I think this, you know, this is uh, an area where it's not, you know, it's not really fraudulent. Uh, you know, uh, it's, but nevertheless, not publishing negative information is is wrong. <laughs> Because negative information is also useful. It prevents other people from doing the same thing and wasting their, their time. You know? So that's why I think it's, it's important to look at you know, how uh, you know, a study is funded. It does not necessarily mean, of course, that, that if, if you, know, you get funding from vested source, that therefore the data is unreliable. Uh, I think the, the bigger concern is is there anything that wasn't published? Uh, but it, it, it's more comforting to see when there's no, no money coming from a, a, a vested source. Of course, that's, you know, these days, everyone is scrambling to get research funds. And I mean, you know, if, if you, uh, uh, Let's say you know you you want to study the effect of some uh, vitamin supplement. I mean, where are you going to go for money? I mean, not to a plumbing company, right? I mean, obviously, it it is going to come from someone who has an interest in in, in, in that. Uh, but when you are evaluating studies, you have to be cognizant of, of, of that. That you know there there may be some hidden motives uh, there. Do you see that as something that will change in the future in the scientific community, or do you think that's always going to be an issue? You know, the person who has the funding kind of controls some of the results. That's, that that's always going to be uh, an issue, an issue. And, and uh, uh, you know, you, you will very often see in a, in a paper, well, these days, of course, you have to acknowledge, you know, all your connection and all, all the funding. And very often you'll see a sentence, uh, that the funding agency had no role to play in, in uh, carrying out the experiments, in interpreting the results, etc. Well, one hopes that that's true, but but you you know you also know that 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 you know interpretation of results is you know it's not always so straightforward. You know, you take your data points, you know, you plot them, and then you see that there may be one or two that are way off the line. And you say, well, you know, I must have done something wrong there. We'll just forget about that and just keep the ones that give you the, the nice straight line. Well, you know, it may be that those data points are, are not the result of errors. It may, may be that, you know, they should be taken into account. But that's why, you know, uh, it becomes in the long run, it becomes self-correcting because if you look at enough studies, then, then all of that kind of stuff gets filtered out. And that's how we know what we know, is by you know, looking at enough studies and, and coming to some sort of consensus. 
And this is kind of shifting gears, but I was going to ask, going back to the COVID-19 pandemic, um, I think when I started talking to a lot of people about mRNA vaccines, I realized that people just oftentimes didn't even know what mRNA was or what a spike protein was. Or <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, this is another challenge, of course, is, is to to try to explain very complex issues to, to, to people who have essentially no background. Right. So what has been your strategy to adapt yeah. those results? You, you have to assume that they are totally unfamiliar with any of the terms. And you have to try to explain everything from the beginning as if they knew nothing about it, because that usually is, is correct. Now, in some, you know, in some cases, it's, it's easy. In some cases, it's not. I mean, when you're talking about, you know, polymer chemistry, I mean, you know, you simple analogy of joining molecules together like links in a chain is something that everyone can understand, you know, so that you can get that across. But when you're talking about biological systems, you know, like mRNA, it's a much, much more complex business. And uh, it takes time and effort to to find the right language and, you know, uh, try to, to uh, explain it. But... Uh, there, there's there's really no substitute for education, you know. I mean, yeah, if if you really want to know what mRNA is, you have to to dig into it and teach yourself. That's it's self convincing is really the only way that things work. It's, you know, uh, because when someone just tells you something outright. There's always a question, you know, are they right? Or, you know, they do they have some vested interest? So you've got to do the work yourself and see if you can I mean, convince yourself about it. But, I mean, things like, you know, mRNA, yes, it's, that's very challenging to, to get across, and, and it doesn't happen in, in a minute. So, I mean, there's there are some concepts that, that, you really have to to delve into, you know, uh, and take the time to explain to people. And if they're willing to listen, I mean, it's possible to to do that. I mean, you know, you don't really have to be a biochemist to to understand it if it is presented in a, a, a proper way. You know, it, uh, but uh, there's also, you know, whenever it comes to uh, biological issues like that. Uh, we have to get across the idea that these are very complex things and, and that uh, sometimes they're inherently unpredictable. You know, like, I mean, I get questions all the time about, you know, how do we know we, we, we started using these vaccines without having information about long-term effects? Okay, well... I mean, by definition, the only way you know a long-term effect is for a long-term to have passed. Well, of course, we don't know long-term effects. So what it comes down to is making educated guesses based on what we have seen with other vaccines, knowing something about the plausibility of what an mRNA vaccine can or, or, or cannot do. You can make a educated guess about what can and cannot happen. But of course, we cannot say that we know the long-term effects because no long-term has passed. So, you know, it's, uh, and this is something that, you know, people will, will 
bring up in a, you know, very often in a confrontational fashion, saying that, you know, this this vaccine has been cranked out so quickly without, you know, enough research being done, whatever, which is is a lot of nonsense because uh, mRNA vaccines have been researched for, you know, over 20 years, ever since the first SARS epidemic. So it's not a new concept. It just so happened that when COVID came around, this was a, a, a great opportunity to apply the research that had been ongoing. But it's not that the concept was created overnight. And yes, I mean, the, the vaccines were uh, created very quickly, which is, you know, it was astounding uh, accomplishment. And uh, yes, they were put into practice very quickly because we were dealing with a crisis. You know, I mean, once you have six million people dying, uh, you can't wait for every I to be dotted and every T to be crossed. You, you do the best that you can. And yeah, maybe there are some issues and there are some, you know, with fact, any kind of vaccination. I mean, there are some some issues, that, you know, there's no question that you can have reactions. But it comes down to, to weighing the risk uh, against the benefits. You know, that's, that's what we do with, with everything. It's a question of weighing the risks against the benefits. And that's why, you know, you have to be careful not to, to you know, pontificate on, on issues as they were set in, in stone. They're, they're not. I mean, whatever uh, scientific issue comes down to, whether it's nutrition or, or medications or use of cosmetics, they question always, do the benefits outweigh the risks? And we have to admit that, yes, there, there are risks. And so there are what they call unknown unknowns, right? Beyond setting up the Office of Science and Society, what drove you to continue making science communication such a central part of your life? Uh, frankly, I enjoy it. <laughs> it's uh, you know I, I like reading about science. I, I like uh, solving mysteries, which is really what uh, what it uh, comes down to. I, I just I, I like uh, acquiring new knowledge and uh, trying to put it into a, di- a digestible form for people. So there there's a you know certain fun uh, aspect uh, to it. And then, you know, every once in a while, you get uh, a nice positive comment from someone. And you see that it's worthwhile. And just, again, wrapping up, we have, we have one last question for you that we always ask at the end of our interviews, um, because we like to hear the advice of, of people that we admire within the scientific community. So if you had uh, one piece of advice for the next generation that wants to improve accessibility of scientific information, what would that piece of advice be? Recognize the fact that if you want the truth, you have to work at it yourself. And it's not enough just to listen to, to someone else. You've got to dig. You have to read the primary scientific literature and then come to convince yourself about which road to follow. Because that really is the only way. You, you can listen to others as guides but you've got to come to a conclusion yourself. And that can only happen by looking at the work that was done, looking at the primary uh, scientific uh, literature. 
Awesome. Well, thank you for, for taking the time to talk with us. And thanks for tuning into this episode of STEMcast with Dr. Schwartz from the Office for Science and Society, brought to you by Miguel Ijem. Make sure you follow our socials for more great interviews like this.